Lake. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see we are jumping into a new series today. And uh, the series is, is called I Am, and, and uh, you'll see why, actually. It's, it, it's important for us to recognize that, that Jesus uh, said many things, and, and some of the most important things that he talked about were uh, things that he taught us about himself, uh, things that we would call self-identification realities about Jesus. And, and it's interesting, right? It's, it's so interesting to me. Um, there's one of the songs we sing, and, and by the way, I love worship at Overlake. I love coming together as a family and lifting Jesus high, and it's just, it's so beautiful to me. Uh, often what happens is I'm here in the front row, and I'm getting emotional, and I'm like, come on, Mike, knock it off. You got to get up there in a minute, you know? And, so I just love being with you guys to worship. Yeah, thank you, Craig. I love you too. But here's the deal. I, I want you to understand that there's a song that we sing, and it's, it actually has a, a really interesting lyric. The song, it's a great song, and it goes like this. Um, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, right? So it's talking to God. Heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. And it's, it's really true because there are thousands of opinions about what God's like. There are, there are thousands of opinions, more than thousands, of, as, as to who God is. And every so often, it's very essential for us to put aside all opinions, right? Just to remove all opinions, including our own. Just set those aside and just listen to what it is that God says about himself, right? That we just open the pages of scripture and just see what it is that God claims for himself, what it is that God says about himself. And so we're going to start actually, um, not with the words of Jesus, we're going to start all the way back in the book of Exodus. This is about 1400 years before the birth and the ministry of Jesus. And this is when Moses is talking with God. God reveals himself to Moses. You might remember this scene in the burning bush. And he, he invites Moses on this incredible adventure. He leaves Mo Moses breathless and barefoot in that experience. And, and, and so Moses, is, he's got his marching orders now, but he asks a couple of questions. And specifically, he wants to know, hey, when I go to the people of God, when I go to the Israelites and I tell them that you sent me, God, who is it that I should say sent me? Like, what is your name? So that's where we're going to start in the book of Exodus chapter 3. Moses is speaking to God. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Look at this line. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, there is so much richness in this, and I, I, I want to just sort of, by the way, tell you, this was actually the topic of my very first seminary class that I ever took, the, the name of God and the implications of the name of God. So, so God reveals in this encounter with Moses, he reveals his name, the name Yahweh, the name I am, I am who I am. 
and, and there are many implications. These implications actually have an incredible amount of practical reality in our lives today. So if you're filling in the blanks, let's just jump in. The first implication of God's name is that God exists, that God exists. Or as Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, God is there. Like, like God is here. There, there is this reality. The reality is God exists. And you might think, well, this is a little Captain Obvious for a preacher to be saying this to me as I'm sitting in a church service. Like that, that seems a little bit low bar uh, for you, even for you. Uh, but here's the thing. So many people in our world today don't believe that God exists. They, they don't. So when God says, I am, I exist, that, that's not a part of their reality. They don't embrace that. Here's what's maybe more relevant for you and I in this room or, or watching online is the idea that many people believe that God exists, but they live as if it has no bearing on their life whatsoever. Right, So, so this is a, one of those incredible realities that, yes, we affirm the existence of God, and yet we also embrace the practical ramifications for our lives, that we build our lives on this foundation that God is, that God exists, that abundance and eternity are bound up in his existence, and therefore, we are different people. We are his people because we have bound ourselves to his name. You might want to just jot this down in, in, in the margin somewhere, but, but, but here it is. Uh, I am, that the name of God, means that God is eternally present tense. He's eternally present tense. He doesn't say I was. He doesn't say I will be. Although those are also relevant for us in terms of how we operate with time. God's name is I am. I am who I am. I am the eternally present one. I'm the eternally existing one. I am. What that means also is that there is nothing you will ever face that God is not with you. There is nothing, you, you, you can't go anywhere, you can't hide anywhere, there, there's no place to travel where you will be, where you'll experience something that God is not also there. Why? Because God is. I am. He is with you. So that's incredibly uh, encouraging for us. That's the first ramification of his name. The second is that no reality exists beyond or behind God. No reality exists beyond or behind him. There was no before God. There'll be no after God. Um, God's independent self-existence is referred to by philosophers and theologians as his aseity. I, I wanted on the screen the idea of aseity. Can you say this with me, by the way? Aseity. It, it's an interesting concept, and it applies only to God. And here's what it means. It means that God is the uncaused cause... He's the unmoved mover. He's the uncreated creator. He is eternally self-sufficient in himself. And we don't have time to go into this now, but a further study on this we'll talk about in, in the Christian concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together as our triune God. And, and so there's this eternal sufficiency of relationship and love, and, and there's no before and there's no after. Uh, it's never, you know, what caused God, uh, like God has always been, will always be, and and, um, and so all of that is wrapped up into this aseity, this, this eternal independence, if you will. 
In, in other words, let me be honest. God didn't create you because he was lonely. Right? He, he didn't have a need. He's, he's not some broken God that needed to create in order to fill a void or anything. Like, no, no, no. There's this beautiful independence. It was actually out of his love that he created. It was out of his love that, that all this purpose and, and his relationship exist. Philosophy refers to God, and you might want to write this down and mull on it. God is the one necessary being. He's the one necessary being. What that means is everything else that is, the entire universe itself, all matter, all energy, everything that is, has a cause, has a source. What that means is that everything that is might not have been if circumstances were different. Right? If, if, the, if the chemical reaction was different, if, you know, if your parents had made a different choice. Like, there's all these kinds of uh, what ifs. And so what is might not have been and what is might cease to exist at some point. And that's true for everything in the entire universe except God. God is the one necessary being. Everything else is contingent upon something else. It's contingent upon some other set of circumstances or some other cause. Only God is the one necessary being. And what this means is that he is foundational, right? He is the source. There is nothing before him, nothing after him, nothing behind him. He is contingent upon nothing, sufficient in and of himself. Which brings us to the next implication of, of his name, Yahweh, I am. It's that God does not change. I am who I am. And, and, and so he, he doesn't change. This is really difficult for us to get our arms around because in our world, change is the only constant we experience. I want you to think back over the course of your life. What has changed? Everything, right? You think about everything has changed. Hairstyles have changed. Fashion sense has changed. Music has changed. Cars have changed. Your sideburns have changed. Your, your body has changed. Everything changes in life, even including the things that have been around the longest on our earth. For example, the course of rivers, or the erosion of canyons and mountains, or the shape and level of the seas, or the distance between planets. The, the things that appear most stable and consistent are also undergoing constant change. But with God, it's different. Uh, the book of James says that with him there's no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Amen. Now here's why this is incredibly encouraging. It's because all of God's attributes, his love, his power, his wisdom, his faithfulness, his grace, are eternal and unchanging. They have always been, they will always be, and they will always provide for us, Praise right? So th his faithfulness in this regard is a beautiful truth to build your life upon. God doesn't change, and for that we praise him. And the next fill-in is that God is an inexhaustible source of energy, an inexhaustible energy supply. Uh, Isaiah Chapter 40 says, Yahweh, right, I am, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He's this inexhaustible source of energy. Amen. And we see this throughout the scripture that God, he is the uncreated creator, which means that he is the source of all things, of all matter and of all energy. 
And I want you to think about that for a moment. All motion, all combustion, all fusion, all fission, they all originate in him. All the energy in the universe has a source. And God is our first and absolute reality. It all starts in him. He is the inexhaustible reservoir of power. His person is radiant with infinite energy. He never needs recharging. He never needs a backup system. God doesn't need to plug into anything. Okay? Everything else is plugged in to him. Uh, and, and there is no other source of life, no, no other source of power. Uh, why would this be encouraging to you, to me? Well, because we do grow weary, and we do grow faint, and we do run out of steam, and yet we can always return to the Lord because he is our source of strength. He empowers us. And the scripture says this, Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I want you to think about the ancient world, and I want you to think about what you know about the, the ancient uh, mythologies and the gods that they d devised. Realize that in, in all of these ancient cultures, gods were associated with things, uh, oftentimes maybe natural phenomenon, for example, the sun god, or you would have gods associated with, with different attributes, wisdom, or uh, maybe the god of fertility, something like this. It's interesting that when you look at God's self-revelation, he identifies himself with being. Because God himself is the source of all being. Amen. He is the foundational reality of all that is. So all these implications of the name of God, the reason why I, I, I talk about this as a rather heady introduction to this series is because Jesus arrives on the scene 1,400 years after this conversation we just took a look at. And everything that Jesus said, everything that he taught, everything that he modeled, friends, as you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read about the life of Jesus, you need to understand one thing as you jump in. He did nothing by accident. There was nothing accidental about the things that he taught, about the, 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 the way in which he lived, about the way in which he marched to Jerusalem and the cross and the resurrection. None of it just happened. None of it was coincidental. It was all by design and intentional purpose. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he said these words to the Pharisees. Right. I want you to take a look at this. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, most certainly, I tell you, before Abraham came into existence, say it with me, I am. What do you think was going on right there? This is not an accident. Jesus is self-identifying with God the Father. Right? The name of the Lord, I am, Jesus is now claiming for himself. He's saying, this is who I am. Now, friends, this is actually really powerful, and I don't want you to miss this moment because there are many times you're going to come up in a conversation, you're going to come up with a philosophy or an idea which says something like this. Jesus is a really, really good guy. He's a really good moral teacher. He did a lot of great things. You know, we want to make him a good human rights activist kind of a, a person, and, and that's great. Just don't claim too many things about Jesus because, and here's the argument, because Jesus himself never claimed he was God. I want you to know this verse. Amen. I want you to know that he actually did claim that he was God. 
And if you doubt it, look at the next verse on your outline. Again, in John, this is 1030. He says, I and the Father are one. Okay. I and the Father are one. I am, right? He says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, that eternal present tense, Jesus identifying himself with the Father. I and the Father are one. We have eternally coexisted. We will eternally coexist. This is a beautiful reality that Jesus is conveying to us. I feel like I've lost you a little bit. I need you. Anybody with me? Like, can I get an amen or a you dog? Okay, all right. We're, We're together here. All right. Yeah, just keeping you on your toes. I want to make sure we're, we're together and all this. So, so now I want to shift the conversation slightly to bread, okay? Shift the conversation slightly to bread. And I know that for many of you in this room watching online, bread has gotten a bad rap in your world. Like for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it's you're just, you're counting your calories and that's just empty carbs or maybe for you, you're gluten-free and uh, you're like, um, why would I bother with bread? I'm gluten-free, you know, and, and it doesn't even taste like bread. And so you just leave it alone. I, I, I don't know what's going on in your world, but I will tell you this, that in, in this conversation about bread that we're having, you need to realize that for, for much of history throughout, you know, much of the world, Bread is actually one of those staple nourishments. It, it's one of those original, you look at sort of the, the, the origin of civilization and, and you kind of go back to those first city-states in the, in the Sumerian region and all that stuff, you realize bread was one of that, those first kind of developments and they go, oh, okay, I get it. It's that staple food. So much so that it actually becomes a metaphor for food in general and uh, maybe you've used this phrase or you've heard this phrase. People say, hey, let's go break bread or let's, you know, let's get together and break some bread. They're not actually talking about breaking bread. They're talking about having a meal together. So it's in the course of all of this discussion that Jesus is going to begin to talk about bread. Now, here's one more interesting thing about Jesus that we're talking about here. Jesus, as you remember, was born in a town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem in the Hebrew means House of bread means house of bread. In fact, archaeologists have recently discovered uh, almost a perfect structure of one of those ancient homes. I think we have a picture of that right here. You guys are actually quite gracious. In the first service, there were just groans, just groans throughout the room. I guess I'm just a gluten for punishment. Uh, There they are. So in this service, groans too. I get it. All right, so uh, (laughs) stay with me. Come on, stay with me here. In John chapter 6, there's this this incredible passage, John chapter 6. The whole chapter is really amazing, and and we'll talk about a a few verses here. But it starts off where Jesus, he's with all these people, and, and they're hungry. And so what does he do? He takes a couple of fish and a few loaves, and he offers it to the Lord, blesses it, and then he starts to break that bread. And distributed, and, and thousands upon thousands eat their fill. And there are baskets left over, and it's just this beautiful, miraculous moment that he has with the crowds as he's been teaching them. And, and so that, that ends, and he and his disciples leave. They go to another place. Well, the crowds, the next day, they follow him. And they go there, and the reason why they're following Jesus and his disciples in this moment is because they want more free food. 
right? They, they are, they're like hobbits. They want their second breakfast, and they, 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 they go after him. They're just tracking after him and the disciples, and, and Jesus knows their hearts, and so he calls them out on this. He says, you're only with me today because you want free food again. He's, he said, listen, you need to be working for food that lasts forever. You need to be working for the food that, that nourishes you unto eternity, and that's the kind of food I can really help you in. And they respond and they say, well, hey, tell us the work that we need to do so that God will provide this food. And, and, and Jesus says, the only work that the Father requires from you is to believe in the one that he sent. Amen. He's talking about himself. That's the only work you need to do. Simply believe. And then they respond. They say, well, if you would just do a miracle for us. Now, he just did a miracle for him, Right. Uh, if you could just do a miracle for us, I don't know, something about making more bread, right? Maybe, maybe you can make more bread. That, they got a one-track mind here. And then they go on. They say, you know what Moses did? Moses gave us bread from heaven, and he fed our ancestors day after day after day. And, and, and maybe you could, you know, make more bread. And Jesus says, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. Your heavenly father gave you bread from heaven. And he says, and your heavenly father wants to give you true bread from heaven right now. Amen. In fact, this is what he says. It's on your outline. This is John 6, 33. He says, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he's talking about himself, but they still don't get it. Right? They don't get it. So they, they're fixated on free food. They say, sir, give us this bread every day. And here's his response. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. Man, that's powerful. I am the bread of life. True nourishment and strength to feast on. He said, feast on me. Be satisfied and filled. Quench your thirst in me finally. And where this is true for our lives today is, and, and Jesus would talk more about this, the things that we pursue to fill that void inside of us, it always leaves us hungry for more. And the way we go after quenching our desire, the, the way we go after slaking our thirst and things of this world, we just find ourselves more parched than ever. And Jesus is saying, look, you, you want that final satisfaction. You want that, that deep, that deep filling, he's saying. That you want nourishment unto eternity. He says, that's what I provide for you. That's what I want to give you. Now, I think you're probably with me in this. Jesus isn't talking about physical food or physical drink right here. And that's what these people he was teaching, they were, they were just caught up in the material Jesus is talking about something spiritual, something deeper, truer, more eternal. And what Jesus is talking about is what he actually had referenced earlier in his ministry in that, that episode where he's given the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's talking about all of the ways that, that we're blessed in this world. And specifically, in Matthew chapter 5, when he says this, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's talking about that hunger and that thirst. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. I'd love to have you circle the word righteousness. 
Because there are, there are a few different aspects of this. And I don't know what you think when you see that word, but let me give you a couple of the aspects or the facets of what this word means. And it's a concept, by the way, that's a Hebrew concept. If you do the study in your uh, New Testament, you'll find that it's a Greek word there, but the idea comes from the Hebrew. And so it always, whether you read in the Old Testament or New Testament, it includes these three components. Are you ready? The first is right relationship with God. That's the first aspect of righteousness, right relationship with God. The second is right living with your brother or sister. It's right living in relationship. And the third, and this is what I think many people, many Christians especially forget, it contains the justice of God reigning. The justice of God reigning. His kingdom come, we pray. His will be done. His justice over all things. That's what righteousness contains. Righteousness and justice. And so those three elements of righteousness, what Jesus is saying is, is you are blessed when you hunger and you thirst for that righteousness, he says, because you will be filled, you will be satisfied, your deep hunger will be met, your thirst will be slaked. In whom? In me, he says. And friends, I don't know if, if this has been a, something on your heart lately, but I'll just tell you, this has really been a part of my story these last couple of weeks, this hunger and this thirsting for righteousness' sake. Right, the, 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 the kingdom of God come, the justice of God come. And, and I, I don't want to you know, talk about too many things, but let me just mention a couple of things. One is, you know, when you see the news, when I see the news about a high school that, that gets shot up, the, the massacre in the hall, when I, when I think about that one student, an ROTC student who held the door so that others could escape, well, he takes bullets. As a father of three teenagers who I send off to school every day, when I think about as a parent receiving a phone call or having a police officer come to my door and inform me that one of my children was murdered in the hallway at school, my heart just yearns for a new day. I, just, I yearn for, for a better world, a, a world in which the brokenness, a world in which, which our innocence and our, our potential... The, our youth, right? The, the, the greatest innocent and potential of our, of our entire nation is, is murder, just mowed down in the hallways. I'm like, oh, Lord, I hunger for a new day. Amen. I hunger for a new day when, when, when people won't listen to the voices of evil, when they, when they won't give in to their worst selves, when they, when they won't let rage or brokenness own the day. I, I yearn for a new day. When we will protect our youth. I, I, yeah, when we won't send our kids off into a danger zone. You know, the Bible talks about this. And I yearn for a day when we will beat our swords into plowshares. And we will study war no more. Come on, friends. Are you with me in this? We hunger and we thirst for this. And so that's contained in this picture of righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For the justice and the rule of God, rightness with God, rightness with one another. Amen. On Friday, I, I was in the hospital 
Friday morning with, with a dear Overlake family, and I have their permission to share their story because they want prayer. And so I would just encourage you, if you would write down the last name Lawrence, it's the Lawrences, and they're going through just an incredible, just a heartbreaking season. But on Thursday, they, they lost their little baby in utero, a little archer, 36 weeks along, right before their delivery date. And, and, and just when it, she had been, in, the mom had been into the hospital on Wednesday and everything looked fine. Everything was healthy. They were doing all the right things. And on Thursday, just gone. And, and I just want you to think about that picture. I want you to think about then what was in store for her, I mean, she had still had to go through all of the pain and all the suffering of delivering that, that child, and yet there was no joy on the other side of that pain. The little archer, they, they, you know, and, and I know them. They're, they're, they, they want your prayers, and, and they have such great faith in Jesus, and this doesn't, this doesn't cause them to doubt, but it does. It, the recognition is, oh, my heart yearns for a new day. No child should ever have to bury, or no parent, rather, should ever have to bury their baby. And what makes the story even more horrific and just this, this tragedy, even if it's possible, even worse, is, is that a, two years ago, their baby Evangeline, also 36 weeks along in utero, and they lost Evangeline wow. as well. This was the second child they've had to put in the ground. And you hear a story like that, and you just say, I yearn for a new day. I yearn for a day when it all is right in the world. I yearn for your kingdom to come. I yearn for your will to be done. I, I yearn for all of the brokenness to be healed, for, for all of the hunger to be satisfied, for all of the thirst to be quenched. And, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And that hunger that you have and that thirst, it will be filled in me. Amen. Because there's this beautiful divine transaction that the Lord and the Father have come together. And in, in, in their eternality and in their before the foundations of the world wisdom, they came up with the plan that Jesus would come and that he would live a sinless life. And that as a part of his journey, he would go to the cross, and he would die and, and suffer and, and be crucified. And the reason for that was so that he could take all of the suffering and all of the sin. He could take all of the shame and all of the guilt and all the brokenness of the world. And he could take all of it upon himself, upon his being on the cross of Calvary, and he could pay the penalty for sin. And he could take that away as far as the east is from the west, dropped into the deepest ocean, remembered no more, your sin removed from you. And in its place, Jesus would impart to you righteousness. He would impart to you righteousness, meaning right relationship with God the Father, a right restored relationship with one another, and the ability to live in his kingdom now where you allow his justice to reign in your life. It's that divine transaction. It's that incredible supernatural trade. And this is what we read when we open up to the pages of, of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin 
so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We could have the righteousness that comes from him. So friends, when you see these verses, you understand what Jesus is is offering us here. He's saying, I'm the bread of life. He's satisfying our hunger and our thirst for righteousness. When you see what he's trying to convey, he's trying to convey, look, I am the bread of life. And I bring this rightness with God and I bring this right relationship with one another and and I bring the opportunity to work for his kingdom now and to pray for his kingdom now. But I'm always gonna point to the reality that his kingdom will come and that when eternity is merged with history, when this whole thing is culminated, that his justice will reign supreme. And so we read this as as he continues to teach in John 6. He's telling these people, look, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. In other words, it was temporary. Anyone who eats bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. What does this say? I want you to look at this passage, and I want you to think about the implications here. Jesus is saying there's a life that is eternal life. There's a life beyond this life. And Jesus is saying, and I am the bread of this life. I am the nourishment of this kingdom. And I invite you to eat this bread. I invite you to live forever in me. Your deep longing for justice will be met. Your deep pain of grief and suffering will be healed. Your deep hunger will be filled in me. Now, when you read through the sixth chapter of John, it's fairly clear. I, I want to say fairly because I don't know their hearts, but it seems to be clear from the pages of Scripture that the people he was teaching, they didn't get it. They didn't understand why he wasn't just making them more bread. They didn't understand this teaching about eating him as the bread of life. They just they didn't get it, and so they all kind of wandered away. They just They left. But that's not as concerning to me as this question, do we get it? Do do we embrace this reality with Jesus? You know, this is not some kind of left-turn teaching that Jesus is, is it's not some sort of esoteric out there kind of a teaching. Jesus wanted to make sure that this was like front and center for his followers throughout the, the years. Because you remember this, you remember it as well as I do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took the cup and he filled the cup with wine and he passed it around to his disciples and he said, I want you to drink this and I want you to understand that this wine represents my blood, which is poured out for you. This blood which is spilled as, as I take the weight of the sin and shame of the world on myself as I free you and forgive you from that, and as I impart righteousness to you, I want you to remember me whenever you drink this cup. And then he took the bread. This savior, this bread of life, born in the house of bread, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he passed it out to his disciples and he said, I want you to eat this bread. And I want you to recognize that it represents my body, which is broken for you. Eat this bread and be made right. right? Eat this bread 
and step into the righteousness of God. Eat this bread and be right with the Lord and right with one another and live so that the justice of the kingdom of God reigns in your world. So friends, we're going to have some time to do that right now. This is what's called the Lord's Supper. And I'd love to ask you to just stand to your feet right now. You might notice that there are tables set up around the room. There's a couple of tables up here in the front. I know there are tables in the middle, I think in the back as well. But what I want you to do is when you're ready, I want you to make your way to these tables and let's worship Jesus. As you take the cup, as you take the bread, I want you to meditate on these words that Jesus is the one who is nourishing us. Jesus is the one who's empowering us to live this new life. That Jesus is not only the great I am, but Jesus is the bread of life nourishing us today. So whenever you're ready, just make your way to one of the tables. Let's go to the Lord's table together.